All right, let me begin real quick by, uh, by praying, and then, I'll, uh, and then I'll explain why you have that sheet and, and what tonight's going to be, kind of what, what we're doing tonight. So let me pray real quick. Dear Father in heaven, is, um, as we do each week, we want to thank you for your word, and uh, not just say that as a formality uh, to start our Bible study, but um, to pause and... and um, truly um, give you gratitude and give you thanks for this, that, that you, you didn't just leave us to figure stuff out on our own, but you actually gave us your word. You gave us um, the things we need to know and revealed your heart and your will to us. Lord, I pray that you would give us a hunger that is deserving of that and uh, that you would even tonight, that you would give us a greater taste for your word and that we would love it more and that we would love Jesus more um, because of the way we read it. May your spirit do that in our hearts. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so um, tonight is, we're doing something just a, a tad bit different tonight, both in the first half and the second half. Scott will explain the second half to you when we get there, but, but the first half, um, I'm going to have you kind of be walking along with me through these stories that I have lined out for you there on the text um, we are covering, as you can see, as you look at that, a lot of ground today. We're covering, we're, we're actually going to break into three different chapters, the end of four all the way through the beginning of six. And so we're covering a fair amount, doing a lot of it. Um, here's why, because this is a section, this is actually, um, and I know I say it a lot, but this is one of my favorite sections in Mark. Um, and so the only section that might not count on that list is the very last half of chapter 16. So, um, but um, this is one of my, but here's, here's why this is one of my favorite sections. This is one of the first sections, I don't know if it's the very first, this is one of the first sections though where the idea of contextually reading the Gospels came alive to me. Where I was able to see, like I recognized, we've talked about this, the value of reading verses in context. So I want to read the verses around those to understand them. And it took me a little while before I grasped and was able to see the idea of reading narratives in the context of the narratives around them. Um, and so this is one of the first places where it really kind of came alive to me, where someone showed me how this all kind of flowed together. These are four, actually we're going to do five tonight, you just have four on the sheet. And, and, and we'll get to the fifth one in a bit, but these are, these are four fairly famous stories. If, if you went to Sunday school, if you grew up in church, you know these stories, but usually they were told um, to you one by one, individually, and, and tonight um, we're, we're going to look at them all together because I believe actually Mark places these stories that might seem a little bit random all together for a reason, for a purpose. And so we'll be talking through a little bit of those tonight. Um, as we do it, here's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm just going to kind of briefly go through them and give you some comments, some thoughts on each of them. What I, I want to ask you to be doing is looking for themes. Um, so asking yourself this question, what do these seemingly random stories have in common with one another? Um, what are these stories... Um, what are the connections? So look for common words, look for common ideas, and we'll talk about that a little bit once we get into it. So go ahead and you can either open up or you've got the sheet there right in front of you, starting in Mark 4. It goes this, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, 
that's Jesus, let us go across to the other side, that's the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with them, so it's not just this boat that he's in, there are actually some other ones going along with them, others were with them, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So, what Jesus does is he's been operating a lot of his ministry out of, we know that he's from Nazareth, which sits around the eye of Galilee right there, okay? Um, But he's been operating a lot of his ministry from Capernaum, which is kind of up in this northwest corner. They're going to go across, and this is his first time out of this Galilee territory in his ministry, um, that's recorded here, and he'll go across over um, the sea. We'll, we'll get there in just a bit. But he begins to cross, and, and the Sea of Galilee, even today, is actually famous for these amazing storms that just kind of spring up out of nowhere. It sits at a low elevation, I believe about 262 feet below sea level, but all around it are hills and mountains that sit at a pretty high level. And so what will happen sometimes is the colder air off of these mountains and hills comes down onto the warmer air that's been settled over the sea, and when those collide, a storm comes up out of nowhere. Uh, I'm told N.T. Wright says that if you travel there, actually in the parking lot, on the west side of this sea and some of the parking lots, there are warning signs there saying like, like park here at your own risk, okay? Because the storms will come up so quickly and the waves will rise up so high that like it can, it can come get your car in the parking lot. So this is, they're kind of known, it's known for this and this appears to be what happens. They sail out, things look fine and then out of nowhere, a storm comes over the sea there. Um, and, and Jesus, as the storm is going, is sleeping while water is pouring into the boat. And they wake him up and they say, um, you know, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Now, just, just to clarify, they're not saying, don't you care, do something. That's not what they're saying. You don't do something when a storm is coming. Nobody, there's, there's nothing you can do. These are fishermen. They know how this works. Like, I mean, you can bail water, you can throw stuff out, but they're not saying to Jesus, do something about this, because who can do anything about a storm? They're simply saying, like, don't you even care that we're all going to drown here, Jesus? You, me, and everybody else, we're all going to drown. And so that's what they're saying to him as this storm blows across the ship. Verse 39, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace. Be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And so here they are, waking him, freaking, freaking out. Jesus wakes up, and with three words, at least in the English here, um, with just a few words, calms the storm, rebukes the wind and the waves, and all of a sudden it just stops. And the disciples are left sitting there. They've been like bailing water, and they just kind of stop and look over there. And then Jesus turns and he looks at them. And he's just rebuked the storm, and now he's about to rebuke them. And he asks them two important questions, followed by one of their questions, which is a really, really important question. This is what he says to them. He said to them, verse 40, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So catch that. Again, like 
their surprise. They weren't waking him to do anything. They didn't think he could, but when he does, this is mind-blowing. They've seen him do miracles. They've seen him do stuff. But nobody controls nature. Like, that's a whole another ball game, and so they're blown away, and it's amazing because they're afraid of the storm, and all of a sudden, the storm is gone, but the fear remains. Only, only now it's, it's a fear of what they just saw Jesus do, this, this new kind of fear that's struck in them. Um, so, into the next chapter, they arrive over across on this side, somewhere in this region, um, calls it the region of the Gerasenes, and here's what we are told by Mark, verse 1 of chapter 5, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So they arrive over there. Um, I'll just say this. this I, I sometimes think through, like, what miracles do I wish I could have been there to see? Like, there are some miracles that would have been just, uh, any of them would have been amazing, but there's some that, like, if I could pick a handful to be at, that would have just been really cool. And, like, like one would be the man with the shriveled hand. Just because it would just be fascinating to me, amazing to me to see a hand actually just kind of grow back to its fullness again. To be able to just see that, that would have been cool. This miracle that we're about to see ranks as, as um, the one that I most slash least want to see. Okay, um, Most because some pretty crazy stuff happens. Um, least because if I had been there, like what would have had, like the, the experience is as soon as you step foot on shore, a bloody demon-possessed dude comes chasing you out of a cemetery, right? Which is like the stuff horror movies are made of, right? And so literally, I've always thought this is the freakiest, this may be one of the freakiest moments in the Gospels and, and how scary this must have been. Mark gives this background on him and it just explains, here's what you need to know about him. This is, this is the condition, this is what he's been like, but, but there's one specific um, verse that he highlights that's worth catching, and that is verse 4, um, which says, basically, no one had the strength to subdue him. So he wants to highlight this. No one had the strength to subdue. That word subdue actually is, is literally, like in the Greek, it's tame. It's the word you use to talk about wild animals, taming a wild animal, and no one could tame him. No one could stop this man. Um, so that highlight there is worth noticing. Um, reading on from there in verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. A legion was a company of Roman soldiers that was made up of 6,000 foot soldiers and 120 horsemen. And so we don't know if this is exactly how many demons there are in this man, but there are a lot, um, enough to affect what we're about to see, 2,000 pigs. Um, so so like there's, there's a bunch going on in here, and no wonder this man is so untamable and that he cannot be held even by chains. 
And he, that is the man, begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us in the pigs, let us enter them. Now, what does this tell us? First of all, that, that little line right there, what does that tell us about the region that we're in right now? It's a Gentile region. It's not a Jewish region because there's no Jews who would have pigs um, anywhere near them. It's forbidden to eat. Okay? It's, it's, it's not kosher, and so they're not allowed by Levitical code. But, but more than that, pigs were more than just something you don't eat. It really had taken on kind of a symbolism of, of something very anti-Jewish and wicked during um, the, the period between the Old and New Testament, the period of like the Maccabees, um, when the Seleucid Empire was ruling this, they used like pig meat as an oppression for the people, offering pig meat as sacrifices on the temple altars, forcing Jewish people to eat them. So, so it had taken on like a very, very negative um, connotation to them. So that tells you that we're actually moving into Gentile territory here when, when we see this predominantly um, a region that is not Jewish um, so they beg him, send us into the pigs, verse 13, so he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herds, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. So we know that this is Gentile territory because there are these pigs here. He sends them in there and they just pigs that don't have like a herd mentality. So they don't just run when, when the other pigs run. Okay, um, But all of these go crazy. They run off these cliffs. As I said, the, the hill country around Galilee sits high above it. Um, and so they run off and go straight into the sea. Verse 14, the herdsmen there, um, freak out, that's the Greek word there. Um, the herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. What, what, why are they afraid? Because now the guy's fine. They're afraid because this is one that Mark said no one could bind like, no one could overpower, and now somebody's here who can do that. And, and if, if this dude is strong, and, and Jesus just came and took care of that in a snap, like, like what, is that, what does that mean about this Jesus person? And so they began to beg Jesus. It says, or so, and those who had seen it describes to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man, to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Um, which I do find is interesting. They don't tell Jesus to leave their region, they don't command, they don't even ask, they beg. Um, pretty pleased with sugar on top, will you please leave? Um, because this is, this is freaky. I was imagine which guy drew the short straw and had to go talk to Jesus about these things. But, um, so they beg him to leave, verses 18 through 20. Um, As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Um, now, this is actually, you may have noticed in this, three different times in this story Jesus gets begged. First he gets begged by the, the demons and Jesus complies with their request. 
And then he gets begged by the unbelieving people of the town, and he complies with their request. And then he gets begged by the man who loves him and is so grateful for him if he can do something, and Jesus doesn't grant his request, which is kind of odd. Um, he says, instead, go and tell everybody. That's, that's why, is because your job is to go and tell. And so he goes and he, he tells in the region of the Decapolis, which is kind of this little section, there's one little town that gets over on this side of the Jordan, but most of it are these ten cities sitting over there on the east side of the Jordan. And so he goes and proclaims it. Now, here's something that's fascinating. Most of the time when Jesus has been healing people, and particularly when he has cast out demons, I say most of the time, there's at least one time recorded so far, what has he been saying to people? Don't tell anyone. And when the demons speak out, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, He shuts them up. He didn't shut the demons up here. And He tells this guy, you can't come with me specifically for the purpose of going and telling everyone. So that seems strange, right? In fact, we're about to see at the end of this story, He heals somebody and again tells everybody, tell no one about this. So, so why has He changed the rules here? My guess is because he's actually in Gentile territory and there's not this crazy messianic fervor that will cause people to, to be looking for a military revolution or will be causing trying to push Jesus to go about it their way rather than his way. And he doesn't mind the word spreading here. And the truth is he's not going to be doing much ministry here. And so it makes sense that he leaves this guy to do the work in the ministry there. And it says everywhere this guy goes and tells it, the people just marvel at what they hear. Next story. Now this gets a little bit confusing on your sheet because you're actually not going to the third one. You're moving to the fourth one first. Mark sandwiches the story of the sick woman in between two halves of the story of the dead girl. So you're starting over there under the dead girl because it's in verses 21, uh, five, or chapter 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again, so now he's back over to the other side in Galilee in the boat, to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside and was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. So Jesus arrives over there on this side of the sea, and this man comes up to him, and Mark names him which he actually rarely does. Outside of the disciples, almost nobody is named in the book of Mark. Um, but this man does get named Jairus. He's sure to clear. But this is, this is kind of interesting too. He only uses his name once. And then he spends the rest of the time using another term for him and stressing it over and over and over again. Ruler of the synagogue. That's significant. Because Jesus hasn't been welcome in synagogues. Synagogues are run, the rulers of synagogues are primarily Pharisees, who are some of Jesus' biggest enemies at this time. But Mark wants to point out that in desperate times, that, that there are people who come to him, and not all of them, even those ruling the synagogue, there are some in there who have eyes to be able to see some of the truth about Jesus. So this man, Jairus, comes up to him and begs him for help. And then Mark shifts the scene away from Jairus and his daughter for just a minute. Now you can go over to that third column, the sick woman, starting in verse 24. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather Rather grew worse. 
So he says that there's this woman here who's had a discharge for 12 years, more than likely kind of like uterine bleeding. That would mean, according to Leviticus 15, that she is ceremonially unclean. That would mean that she is not allowed to go into the temple courts with the women to worship. That would mean that anyone she comes into contact with is ceremonially unclean, which means she shouldn't be there right now. Because as she presses her way through the crowd to get to Jesus, every person she presses past is by law like ceremonially unclean. And they need to go and make themselves clean. And, and she should not be reaching out to touch Jesus, this rabbi, either. That's No, no, but uh, Mark says here that, that she had gone for 12 years, she had gone to many different physicians. None of them could do anything about this. Verse 27, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, and I love this, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So she comes to him seeking healing and and. She sneaks up behind him in the crowd, but there are people all around. She sneaks up, she touches him. Immediately, she feels that she is healed. Also, immediately, Jesus feels power actually go out of him when he does those. So he turns around, and this, this is this awesome exchange between him and the disciples where he goes, Who touched me? And his disciples go, Uh, everyone. <laughs> right? Like, like, do you not. Do you, what do you mean, who touched you? Like, how are we supposed to fit? Everyone is touching you, Jesus. Everyone is reaching out for you. But Jesus says, no, 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 I felt power go out of me. So he turns around, and this woman kind of knows that, like, the, the hope is that she can touch him, be healed, and then get out of there. She knows now um, that she's going to have to come forward, and it says she comes with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling because she's just, like, like if word gets out, actually, like, there could be a lot of people in the crowd angry at her. Fear and trembling because she just touched this man um, and technically made him ceremonially unclean. Fear and trembling perhaps because she just experienced something that she cannot get her mind and, and her, her heart around at this moment. She knows that she's just encountered greatness, um, something huge, and she comes before him um, scared out of her mind, falling at his feet, and Jesus says something really beautiful and something really kind of odd. Daughter, your faith has healed you. I love that. That's, that's beautiful. That's reassuring. That's peaceful. But your faith has healed you? Like I, thought, I thought Jesus had healed her. Your faith has healed you. That's, that's going to get kind of interesting in, in just a bit when we get to our very last story. Um, now we, we shift gears back to Jairus and his daughter. Verse 5, while he was still speaking... Um, or 25, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead, why, why trouble the teacher any further? In other words, it was worth the effort while your daughter was alive, okay, but now she's dead and there's nothing he can do. There's, there's nothing anyone can do anymore. So don't trouble him anymore. Don't bother him anymore. 
But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he, should, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. We mentioned this before that Peter has his 12, but he also kind of has this inner three. Sometimes the inner four. Every now and then Andrew gets to be a part of this. This time he's left standing over there kind of on the side. So, But Peter, James, and John, he brings with them to the house there so that they can see what is about to take place. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. Um, so he says, to, he shows up, people are weeping and wailing. There are people who know her. They're probably, as was the custom, professional mourners whose job is to show up and cry at funerals. Um, and so there are people who might even already be doing that there. He says, stop it. You're crying over a, over a girl who's taking a nap. Okay? And, and they all laugh because they know. They know she's not sleeping. She's, she's, she's dead. And, and she really is actually dead, but, but when it comes to, when, when Jesus is in the presence of her, she may as well just be sleeping. He goes to her, he says, Talitha kumi, this is Aramaic, which would have been the language that Jesus spoke. Um, so our, our, our New Testament is given to us in Greek, um, but, but, what, but it's the language that would have been spoken in this region, the language Jesus himself would have spoke was Aramaic. says to her, um, little girl, I say to you, arise, and immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. So he goes in, and he heals this girl, and makes her well, and again, as we see, he, he switches back into kind of the secrecy mode, um, and tells them, no, don't tell anybody. He didn't even bring some of his disciples, so we don't know for sure if he goes back and tells the other disciples what happened. Surely Peter, James, and John did, right? Like, surely they were like, you, you guys missed out, um, because that was crazy. Um, crazier than the bloody guy chasing us from the cemetery, okay? Um, like, but, but Jesus doesn't, he doesn't tell anybody these things, and he keeps this secret. We're back in Galilee right now. We're back in Jewish territory. And I think because, we, we've, because Jesus, the move in Mark so much, and the move of Jesus' life is one that they could not have imagined, one towards suffering, um, I wonder if news of Jesus just raising people from the dead and taking all this stuff away would really counteract that understanding for people. Like, how could Jesus suffer and die if he doesn't let other people die? And those kinds of things. And so, and so he keeps this stuff a secret. Now, question is, what do all of these things have to do with one another? These four stories, why does Paul... now? now it seems chronological, so he puts them there um, because chronologically they seem to flow together. But, but he uses language that ties these four seemingly random stories together. And, and so I want to hear from you a little bit. What are themes or words that you may have noticed or circled as these texts are next to each other that find themselves kind of throughout these passages? That no one could do stuff. Okay, that no one. So you see this 
area of um, basically this idea of, of what's happening being impossible, right? Um, the storm is kind of goes without saying because it's a storm and nobody does anything with storms. You don't, you don't do anything with weather. You don't do, it just is, but, but Jesus goes and he heals that. The demoniac Mark takes pains in verse 4 to clarify that they tried to bind him and he couldn't be bound. In fact, no one had the strength to subdue him. The sick woman, he, he is sure to stress this, that for 12 years she's gone to many physicians and no one has been able to take care of her. She hasn't gotten any better. Again, the dead girl is actually very similar to the storm. Or actually, there is mention in it when the servants go and they say, she's already passed, so don't trouble the teacher anymore because no one can do anything about death. Okay, that's good. That's one of the common things that gets lined out through these texts. What else? Okay, fear. So this is a big one too. We see in the boat the disciples are freaking out and panicking as water's coming over and teacher, don't you care if we perish? And then after he calms the storm, he says to them, first thing, why were you so afraid? And then they're still really afraid, right? After that, in the demoniac um, issue, when, when the people show up, it's, it's not the demoniac, but when the people show up and they see what, God ha- or what, what Jesus has done with this man, and they see this person that no one could subdue. Um, Jesus just subdued him. And it says that they were afraid. Okay? The sick woman, after she's healed, comes forward in fear and trembling. All right? And, and the dead girl, when, when the servants show up and say, don't bother the teacher, she's already died, and you know that Jairus goes down to his knees and he starts to lose it. And the first thing Jesus says to him is, don't be afraid. Like, there's no need to fear here. So that runs all through these stories. What else do you see? Faith. Faith, okay. That becomes a really big one in this one. So, what he says to the disciples, he asks them two questions. The first is, why were you so afraid? And the second was, yeah, do you still have no faith? Which is kind of crazy. He's like surprised. Do you still have no faith? And they're going, how are we supposed to know you could do that? You know what I mean? Like, like, that's, like that he's kind of shocked at it. And, and they, when it's done, they're like, who is this? Like, we had no idea. Now, the demoniac story, you actually don't see mention of faith. And that is because Jesus actually is the one who steps in. Um, th- this man is, is, it seems, incapable of expressing faith. He is completely controlled by the evil spirits inside of him. And so Jesus steps in without his faith. That, that actually makes kind of this story interesting here in just a second. So you don't see it here so much, but in the sick woman, he says to her what? Your faith has healed you. So we know this, um, that the faith becomes important. Well, we'll we'll get more to it in a second. Um, The dead girl, he says to the father, what? Don't be afraid. Believe. Only believe. So faith is huge in this one. Anything else? News update. Anybody? Anybody? Give that one opportunity. Okay. This might be far-fetched, but Jesus is going about yeah, there's action all throughout these things. No, that, there is truth and this. is He does seem to be stressing some of the action of Jesus' ministry in this. So that's good. Anything else you see that, that pops up several times in these? Jesus. Okay. 
Okay. You are, you are touching right up against it. I'm going to just put this word here. Like in, in almost all of these stories, so after, after not the superheroes, okay, people marvel at what he's done. So he calms the storm. He calms the storm, and the disciples look at him, and they go, like, who is this? And they're filled with great fear, it says. And when the demoniac goes back to the ten cities and he begins to declare what Jesus has done, which is really interesting, Jesus says, go and tell them all that the Lord has done for you. And then Mark says, and so he went and told them all that Jesus had done for them. And so he ties those two together and says, hint, hint, Jesus, Lord. Okay, same thing together. So, um, but he says, when he goes back and he tells them all, says the people marveled at it. Now, the sick woman happens so quickly, and we don't actually even know if anybody in the crowd knows what goes on there. Because it's chaos, it's the throne. There literally could have been Jesus like bending over and talking to her secretly. And so it happens so fast, nobody really has a chance to know what, what goes on there. So we don't see any mention of it here. But when, when the dead girl is raised, it says this, that they are overwhelmed with amazement. And so, so all of these things are tying these four stories together, showing that there is commonality, showing that there's a thread. So here is what Mark is showing us as he walks through these things together, that in each of these situations, Jesus steps into impossible circumstances, circumstances that no human being can control, and then he takes control of those circumstances. And he takes control and demonstrates this, okay? That Jesus has power, has power over nature, has power over the spiritual realm, has power over sickness, and has power even over death. Basically, there is no thing that Jesus does not have power over. That's, that's the statement here. That's, that's the story that he's weaving together. Every sphere that you can think of, no matter how improbable, no matter how impossible, there is no situation in which Jesus does not have power and authority over all of it. And so the next kind of thinking there is that the right response when you're in the presence of Jesus is never fear, at least not the wrong kind of fear. No fear in the situation itself. Okay, um, and, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit more as we get to it. But a fear in Him and what He's able to do. Instead, there is a better kind of response. And, and I'm, I'm guessing you already know what that better response is. But our last story actually helps us sum that up a little bit. That's the very first six verses in chapter 6. So here, Jesus is actually going to go from probably Capernaum or Bethsaida or something, and he'll travel over actually to Nazareth, which is his hometown. This is what it says. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. 
And Jesus said to them, so just, just a question, when, when they're saying, what is this wisdom? What is this knowledge? What are these mighty works? That's not like a, man, this is incredible. It's a, like, is this really legit? Like, who in the world is this guy that, that this kind of stuff could be coming from him? He's, he's, he's a day laborer. He's a carpenter. He's like, I, like I, know his, I know his brother, okay? Nothing that special about this family. And so they take offense at the proclamations he makes and even the things he does. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, real quick, back in verse 2, it used this word, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were, what? astonished, okay? So we get back to this idea of marvel. Now we're going to see it one more time. Verse 6, And he marveled because of their unbelief. And so this is the first time over and over and over again through this series of stories we get this. Jesus does things and the people marvel. Jesus does things and the people are amazed. Jesus does things and, and the people are astonished. And how is the first time where the table flips and Jesus is the one who's astonished? And, and what, what astonishes Jesus, and it's almost like, and I don't know, but it seems like Mark is trying to kind of show this to us. The most amazing thing, which you should be astonished at, like you don't need to be astonished that he calms storms and throws demons out and raises the dead and heals sick people. The most astonishing thing in all these stories is that anybody would not believe in him after all of those things. That's, that's what astonishes Jesus. That's what causes him to marvel. So the right response in the presence of Jesus is faith. Faith in who he is. Faith in what he's capable of. This doesn't mean, okay, so, so it's, it's worth kind of clarifying here. Um, the, the point of these stories is not to say that Jesus can come in and as, as some preachers might like to say, Jesus can calm the storms of your life, right? Um, that's, a, that's a fairly common lesson or story. That's, that's not the point of what Mark is saying. Mark is lifting up not the things that Jesus can do for you, but simply who Jesus is. And, and so he's lifting up. He, he's not saying to you that through every storm in your life or through any sickness that comes your way that Jesus is going to go and he's going to just take care of it. Um, in fact, some of Jesus' followers, Paul, goes through, a, in Acts 26, a literal storm. And Jesus doesn't calm the storm of his life right there. No, he, he allows Paul to get shipwrecked in the middle of this great and powerful storm. And so the promise isn't that whatever, whatever you're going through, Jesus can take it away. Actually, Jesus can, but the promise isn't that he will. The promise is not that Jesus is going to make everything work and make everything easy, but the promise is that no matter what situation you're in, you walk through those things with the one person in the universe who has control over all of it. With the one person who is not afraid of what's happening, who is not scared in those moments, who is not unsure of what to do. There is one person who has authority and control over all of these things, and, and he says that's the person that you've placed your faith in. And, and this is the person, regardless of what the storm ends up doing to me, regardless of what the sickness, the cancer ends up doing to me, regardless of how 
early death may come to me, this is the person who holds my life in his hands. And, and he is worth following no matter things go good or bad. And, and I, I know that one day, like everything will work out under his control as his kingdom um, culminates and renews and restores everything. Um, this, is, this is the one I trust. This is the one I put my faith in. Um, we'll take a break here for a moment, and then Scott's going to come up and lead us through kind of something different. With the, uh, with the length of verses that we had to tackle tonight, I wanted to give Drew enough time to, to work through that, and so I wanted, wanted us to have time to, um, to reflect on, on these stories. And so here in a moment, what we're going to do is I'm going to introduce um, three different commands of Jesus from this section. So three different commands that Jesus gives, and, and we're going to take each one one by one, and, and I'm going to give you a chance to just reflect on what His words may be saying to you tonight. So, a couple of things I want to, I want to kind of help you, help you keep in mind. One is, um, there, there are probably two ways to, to just focus and reflect on Jesus' words. One would be um, a good way, one would be a bad way. And the bad way would be to just take take Jesus' words out of context, stick it on a board, and go, hmm, what do those verses mean to me? Um, Jesus wouldn't want that. He wouldn't want you to take His words out of context. He would want you to understand the words that He gave in the context in which He gave it. And so we've just spent for 40 minutes talking through the context of Jesus' words. So I want, you to keep, I want you to keep the context in mind. You have to keep it in mind. And, and I will do my best to kind of set you up and hedge you in a direction, but the other the other thing. So the good way is to understand in context. The other thing I want to say is this: that, that the Bible comes to us, and it, and it says that all the scriptures God breathed is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good good work. That's that's Second Timothy three sixteen. So there is there is this reality that the Bible isn't just a book that was written at a certain time to certain people in a certain context that we need to understand. We need to go back. We need to, we need to know what the author's intended meaning is in order to understand how to apply it to our life. But the, the Bible says that the Word of God is living and active too. And, and so I want this time to be a time where, where you allow God to speak to you through His Word. And so we're going to do that here in just a moment. So this first one, that I want to I want to talk about is really uh, it's it's taken both in the the story of the storm and then the story of the dead girl um, and, and it's this idea that Jesus Jesus challenges uh, his disciples and then the synagogue ruler um, not to be afraid but to have faith and. And so I want to introduce this, this, um, this particular one with this statement. We've talked a lot about um, being faithful where you are. That seems to be kind of something that we're challenging you this year. And so I want to say this, that, um, to kind of set this one up. To, in, in order to be, I just did something. In order to, to that being faithful where you, are, where you are requires an accurate understanding of who Jesus is. 
what, what he's challenging them is to recognize who he is and what he can do. And so when you do that, when, when, we, when we grow in an accurate understanding of who Jesus is, we all of a sudden recognize that there are certain things I don't need to be afraid of because of what Jesus has promised us. Life in him, identity in him, um, um, that, that we don't have to worry about the things that we... We don't have to worry about tomorrow for today um, has enough worries of its own that, that God is faithful to promise to, to take care of our needs. Those types of things, right? So, so there, are, there, are, there are all these things that we can now not fear because we know who Jesus is. And we can trust Him because of it. So there's a section of Scripture I want you to turn to as you use to reflect on um, Jesus' words. It's, it's Colossians 1. Turn to Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. This is, who, this is who God says Jesus is, okay, uh, as, he, as He's revealed it to, to us through His Word. This is what He says. Colossians 1.15 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, and visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. So Jesus comes on the scene, and He doesn't come on the scene to show us how a perfect example of a moral person. He comes on the scene as God, here to set everything back into order, to, to start a redemption and restoration process that will, that will be finalized when He returns. And so, so He's coming to, to, to um, restore all of creation and all of our relationships and in our relationship um, to God. This is who He is. And then later on in Colossians 3.3 3 it, it says to believers, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So here's the point. That for those of you who've placed your faith and trust in Jesus that your life is hidden in the One who reigns supreme over everything. Okay, so, so think of something that God doesn't reign supreme over. Think of something that Jesus isn't, um, isn't, doesn't have authority over. And, and you can't. And so that's the point. Jesus is saying, trust me. And believe. So I want you to take some time and just reflect on Jesus' words. We'll take about three or four minutes and then, um, then I'll continue.
Okay. This next this next scene was one that jumped out at me the most. It it's this this story of this this man that Jesus heals that was possessed by this legion of demons, and there's so many things that stuck jumped out at me, but but it really jumped out at me the fact that Jesus wouldn't let him follow him. It's like okay, Jesus, you have you have fishermen following you, okay. So they've got kind of, I guess, a cool story. They're willing to leave their career behind, you know. But you could have this demon-possessed dude. Like, he would be your closer, right? So you, you, you go and you preach and you talk about all these people that have been changed by your ministry. And then, like, the very last guy, come on up here. You guys know this guy. He was, right? And, and there's something about this that is just it baffles me because two things. One, when you experience transformation at this level, like all you want to do is follow Jesus, is, is, is what I see here. This, this guy experiences what, like nobody could help him. And Jesus frees him, and he wants to give his life to him, wants to dedicate his life to him. And, and Jesus says no. He turns him around and he goes back. He, he sends him back home to, to talk to his friends. And so here's, here's the point I want to, suggest about what it means to be faithful where you are. That being faithful where you are requires a willingness to live an ordinary life of proclaiming the gospel in word and deed. Ordinary life. Like this is the this guy was famous in this region for not the right the right reasons, not the reasons he probably wanted, but he was he was famous. And he might have been famous had, he, had Jesus let him follow him, become one of his disciples. He says, no, go back. No, go back to your friends and live your simple life telling your friends and your family about me and about, about the grace and the mercy that God has showed you. See, here's the point. You're not that big a deal. And neither am I. And... and Drew hit on this last week, that doing something big in this world, doing something big for God, doing something big for the kingdom of God, isn't really measurable on this side of eternity. You don't know what's big. That your decision to come here tonight may be one of the biggest things that happened. Who knows? Your decision to um, come to OSU may have been a huge decision. Your de- Your decision to get in front of public or be, become famous may not be actually that big a deal at all. You being well-known may not be that big a deal at all in eternity. Um, you, you and I have no idea what, what big is to God. Really only He does. And so the chances of you, the chances are you won't become famous, you won't be well-known. This guy, he... He was, he was soon forgotten. You remember that guy, that crazy guy that used to hang out at the tombs? Yeah. Whatever happened to him? I don't know. This guy will soon be forgotten. And yet his friends will know Jesus. His friends will know God and, and, and the grace and the goodness that, that God showed this man. And, and that was what the Lord asked him to do. And so are you willing to, to be ordinary? Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
It's a great section to remind us about this. 1 Thessalonians 4. Starting in verse 9. First Thessalonians 4 verse 9 says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and depend on no one. He's not saying not depend on the church. He's saying don't depend on the world to provide. As you, you take on, you bear the responsibilities God's, God's given you. But you go on and you live a quiet, ordinary life of proclaiming the gospel in word and deed. And let God worry about eternity. Let God worry about how big your influence is, because it's all Him anyway. So, take some time to reflect on, on Jesus' words to this man.
Um, <clears throat> this last this last story is th- these particular words probably have the most um, chance of being taken out of context. Um, but so let me set it up with this way: the, the difference between death and life, the scriptures teach. The, the difference between being dead in our sin and alive is Jesus. And and. And he makes all the difference in this little girl's life. And so, here's, here's the point. That to be faithful where you are, there must be a death to self and life to Jesus. Um, like in order for, for, for life to happen, for there, there, there would have had to been a death. There would have had to be a non-existence. Um, for new life to happen, there has to be death to take place. And so, Jesus' words become huge. Turn to, turn to Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Luke 9, 23 will be our last couple verses that we're going to look at. When Jesus uh, invites us to follow Him, He doesn't invite us to become a better person. He doesn't invite us to um, become a happier person or a wealthier person. Um, he, he, he invites us to come and die so that we may live. Listen to the words, uh, Luke nine twenty three and 24. And He said, Jesus said, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. And follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So here's the question. What is it that needs to be put to death in order for new life to take place? What needs to be put to death in order for new life to take place? And what is it that God is calling you to? Um, These are some things I want you to pray about as you reflect on on Jesus' words.
So, um, I believe that knowledge about God's Word doesn't actually help us until it becomes integrated into our life. Until we until we begin to sit with it and let it and let it be spoken to us and let it become alive and to us that God would actually speak and actually move and actually reveal and show us things that He wants to show us. And so, until we take time to sit and reflect on God's Word, we're just we're just filling our heads with knowledge. And so there, He's given it to us so that we can know Him and love Him. And so I hope that 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 you would continue that that habit, that practice. Um, and so I want to pray, and then we're going to jump into a time of worship, and, um, and Kayla and, and Denver are going to lead us, and Meredith. And so let me pray, and we'll begin. God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that it is alive, that it is active, that You are speaking, that You, um, you don't just leave us out there. You don't just leave us guessing, um, but God, You give us um, people to teach us. You give us resources. You give us your spirit that um, brings it all in and helps us to see and to know you and to see what you're calling us to. And so, God, I just pray that you use this time of worship to bring you glory. And uh, may, may, it, may it be a, a, just a beautiful aroma of worship to you. And uh, may it bring joy to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I look. <laughs> Who breaks the power of sin and darkness? Who love is mighty and so much stronger? The King of glory, the King of love. 